today's rigged podcast, we are back after a summer hiatus and we come out with a vengeance with attorney Chris Post and Ilias Rona going over um, the Sonia Farrakh Amherst drug lab case. But uh, this is how this is an interview that we're going to do today with um, that was obtained by Chris from the state police with one of the chemists that worked there. So we will have her um, audio on how that lab was running and how Sonia was able to do what she did. All of that and more on today's rig podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back. Hello to the podcast. We've taken a couple months off um, for vacation purposes and to kind of uh, regroup and um, figure out where we wanted to kind of go moving forward. We've gotten a, a great response. We haven't overly marketed the podcast, but there's already been um, a large number of people from across the world that have listened to the podcast, which is great. And um, today we're going to be talking about um, we're going to be going over some interviews that, uh, that Chris and myself have gotten from the attorney's general's office, which, uh, were recorded back in between 2015 and 2016. Uh, this was years after the drug lab had been closed and, uh, they were still interviewing people, uh, about this case. Now with us today, is uh, Ilias is always co-host and uh, Chris Post is back. Hi so, there. Hi guys. So um, Chris, uh, Ilias, um, what have you been up to for a vacation? Let's just start there. Have you done anything fun? Well, I've, I've been trying to uh, hang on by my fingernails to a world that seems like it's spinning faster and faster. Um, <laughs> uh, I think there's been an interesting shift in a lot of the narratives in the last couple of months, uh, especially after the uh, George Floyd murder uh, that I think has um, uh, maybe opened uh, eyes of more people and maybe uh, allowed people to keep their eyes open longer. So I hope that going forward, uh, our audience will see that these things matter uh, and, and, and that there are uh, numerous opportunities for people to intervene uh, uh, and, and, and steer things in, the, in, in a right direction. And hopefully more people can start doing that earlier. Um, and uh, and uh, so what I've been doing is uh, trying to just uh, uh, observe the landscape uh, uh, as it hopefully slowly tilts in the right direction. Right. And um, Chris, so today we're going to talk about, as you know, the interviews um, that you provided uh, for Rebecca Ponce. She is a former, uh, today's interview is going to be just with her. And uh, she's a former chemist at UMass Amherst Lab uh, with Sonia Farrakh and Jim Hanchett and Sharon Salem. Those, those were all the main chemists at the lab at the time. Uh, could you go over how you got uh, this interview from the attorney general's sure. office. So um, periodically the defense bar would get um, various discovery disclosures, um, massive files containing, you know, hundreds of PDFs um, relating to either the Hinton investigation or the uh, 
Amherst investigation. Uh, what was interesting, um, after the Kerry hearings, um, I believe that was in, was that 2016, if I remember correctly, 27? Um, in, in any event, after those hearings um, that delved into Kazmarek's uh, misconduct as well as Ms. Farrick's, um, I ended up getting another discovery disclosure that had a couple of these interviews, at least transcripts of them on there. Um, so A, it's interesting that these weren't provided to the defense bar before the Kerry hearings. And B, um, I, I didn't get all of the hearing, uh, all of the transcripts uh, in the discovery disclosure that was turned over to me. So um, I figured out from various references in the transcripts and um, some other pieces of evidence that there were more interviews and that transcripts likely existed. So it took about a year, but I sent in a public records request to the attorney general's office asking for the remaining transcripts and any audio files. So they ended up um, sending these back. Okay. And um, so these are all in, uh, Kaczmarek is in Kaczmarek, that's, she's a former uh, assistant attorney general, correct? That, that yeah. worked on the, uh, I mean, our listeners would know, but just in case you missed it, she's she's the one that was uh, transferred out of the attorney general's office after what happened with Luke Ryan and the discovery for the Sonia Farrakh case. So um, now, so this interview um, is with, um, Rebecca, and it's all about her time at the lab. So, Randy, you want to play the first clip about? Well, actually, um, can we just before oh, yeah. we okay. jump Go in mm -hmm. lay sure. out a little more context because uh, this story is actually uh, unfolding uh, in several different points in time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want the, the listener to sort of be mindful that there's the uh, what we knew at the time uh, story, and then there's the investigation. Uh, and an and uncovering of things, and then it's the uh, the the effect of those uh, discoveries on the legal system. Incorrect. So we're talking about uh, in 2016, learning about things that were being done in 2012 that we were told later had not happened. Right. <laughs> right. And then the legal system is poised to do something about it in the form of the Judge Carey hearing. And yet we find out that even that effort was thwarted because right. there was other transcripts and audio. So I know that's a lot that makes people's it heads is. spin, but I think it's helpful to know that we're talking about things that happened in 2012 that would have been great to have learned earlier than uh, they were learned so that we could have done something about it in 2016. And, and, and you had every excuse, I'm sure, Chris, uh, to have, you know, walked away, washed your hands, punted it, shrugged your shoulders, but you kept uh, chasing uh, the, the 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 rabbit going around the the oval in Suffolk Downs, um, and some might some people might get that uh, or Wonderland, I guess. I get um, that. And and so with that, I think it's important to understand that there's sort of three points in time that these uh, what we're about to hear matters. Yeah. So just briefly, the timeline is in. 2012, Dukin is arrested. In the beginning of 2013, Farrick is arrested. In 2014, the OIG report comes out. In 2014 also, there, there are the kinder hearings um, where the attorney general's office 
purposely withheld evidence that would have been very useful. In 2015, the what was that was, evidence? I'm sorry, what was that? That was evidence? worksheets okay. that were found. In 2015, the Cotto and Ware cases are decided, and they basically say the government didn't investigate Farrick at all. Uh, you have to. If there's a constitutional obligation on the part of the prosecution to look into what cases she tainted. As a result of that, the attorney general's office started an investigation. It issued a report uh, at the beginning of 2016. At the end of 2016, Judge Carey <coughs> had an additional series of hearings on the misconduct. And then it was either at the very end of 2016 or the beginning of 2017 when I figured out additional transcripts and audio recordings existed. So if, the, if we had known about some of the stuff that was in here, it, we certainly would have made it an issue in the carry hearings, but we didn't get it until after that. And Chris, that was an ex excellent summary. And let me just though go back to the, the thing you mentioned, 2014, the OIG report came out uh, a, a lengthy report, but it could be boiled down in the in the mind of the people who prepared that report into a single sentence, which is Annie Dukin was the sole bad actor. Right. And I'm sure one could go back and to that report. I'm I'm I'm, I'm guessing this is going to be correct, but somebody can refute me. Uh, there's no mention of the the uh, um, practices and and uh, uh, misconduct that we're delving into now. Uh, and so we're told that there's only one person who did anything wrong and everything else was pretty much kosher um, other than maybe lax management. Uh, and yet this uh, was known, what was going on was known uh, to uh, pretty much everybody. Uh, and somehow that never made its way into the OIG report. Well, um, and the, I think that's important The OIG too. report was exclusively about the Hinton lab. Um, so they didn't touch Amherst issues at all. Um, however, to their credit, they did point out that the Hinton lab was not following Swig drug in a number of material respects. So they did get that right. But um, but they don't talk about at, standards, for example. Um, I don't think they, they get from. too far into standards. But to Chris's point, they do uh, go in at length that there was no training, like the as as far as he said with the swig uh drug standards right. they they did talk about that but they didn't but that's why that's what makes the conclusion that much more erroneous and ridiculous uh that they talked about all these deficiencies in the lab in their own report and then undermined everything they talked about in the report up to that point by saying dukin was the lone bad actor right okay so for con and additional context here this was the, the attorney this interview was a part of the attorney general's 2000, uh, like the, it was done in 2015. So building up to the 2016 report, they interviewed uh, a number of different chemists, uh, all of which we have interviews with uh, audio interviews that we'll be going over. And this is the first one that we wanted to talk about. It's Rebecca Ponce. Uh, she was interviewed in December of 2015. So uh, the, everything had already been, this It was three years after um Sonia, actually right about three years after Sonia Farrakh was arrested because she was arrested in January of 2013 and three years after um, the, the Duke and stuff went down. Or was she arrested in January of 2012? She was arrested January 2013. Okay. These interviews are taking place, I believe, in November or December 2015. Right. 
And so they're going over for the carry hearings. Right. (laughs) And they're going over what it was like to work at that Amherst lab. So, okay. Are we ready for the first clip? It's yeah. That's correct. Yep. It's just them introducing themselves. Okay. And we are on recording. Um, my name is Captain Steve Fennessy. I'm with the Massachusetts State Police. I'm assigned to the Attorney General's Office in Boston. Today is Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. The time is approximately 1.11 p.m. We are in the Attorney General's Office within the uh, State Police Detective Unit. And uh, we are going about to... Um, uh, conduct an interview with Rebecca Ponce. All right. So, um, let me just say before this, uh, Chris had said that they were suppressing evidence. I, uh, they being the attorney general's office and not releasing it at the time of these things and then just kind of shuffling it after. That is my experience with this as well because I, for over a year and a half, tried to get these recordings. I had initially gotten Annie Dukin being interviewed in 2016, but I initially tried to get this as well and they, for a year and a half, denied my FOIA request saying that these interviews didn't exist, so... For me, it's this is delightful to to go through these and to actually uh, know that they do exist in there. Uh, and there's very specific reasons as to why they kept these and tried to keep these under wraps. So um, let's go to the next clip, Randy. Um, actually, let's go to um, the the training clip. Can you go to that one at three forty two? Yeah, that's the second one. I think I got hired um, because they had someone who previously left the evidence office and she took over those duties. Okay. And um, prior to joining the lab, did you have any training experience um, in drug laboratories? No. No. So. So zero experience for Rebecca. This was her first job out of the gate. And then so the next one, Rand. And uh, what did Jim show you to do? What, what was the things he walked you through? And- he walked me through each of the substances we normally come across, um, how to go about um, weighing and analyzing those substances, um, the paperwork involved, and just what was expected of me as a chemist. So there she was trained by Jim, and Jim is Jim Hanchett from the lab. That was her only training with um, drug processing. Right. And so that I think that paints a picture of someone who is just like, this is her first job. She, this, she only knew what to do because they, they, her management was telling her what to do. So she had no idea it was, if it was right or wrong. She was just doing it in accordance to what they told her to do. And, and as we, we might get to, uh, uh, in a bit, if Hanchet's, uh, training or his, uh, distant memory of, of his training, uh, is faulty, then she's got, her training is going to be faulty. Absolutely. Um, and she won't know what she's missing because she was trained by someone who didn't understand it himself. And so, Rand, could you play the one at 504, the only drug lab training she had outside? Okay. That's the next one after the classy one. Uh, no, the next one after that.
you attended a DA training school, correct? Correct. And do you remember when you attended that school? I think it was 2011. And is it fair to say that was really the only kind of outside training that you had received while you were employed by the Department of Public Health? There was a, a mass spectrometer training in Jamaica Plain probably earlier that year or the year before, but that was it. But that was within DPH? The yes. DA school was the only... It was separate, yeah. Was so totally that was separate. the only opportunity I had. Um, now. So when you have a person that has very limited training, you would want to... I mean, as a manager or as someone that or you guys have worked out in the professional environment for years, if someone has a lot, a tiny bit of experience, what are you going to do? You're going to supervise them and train them up, right, on the job. Uh, you're going to watch them to and review their work to make sure they're doing it correctly, right? Don't you think that makes sense? Yeah, each year there's going to be um, continuing education. So one of the sections in Swig Drug uh, regards maintaining competence, and it says... Um, section 2.5.1, minimum annual training required for continuing professional development of analysts is 20 uh, contact hours, um, and it must be documented. So (laughs) again, um, I mean, this is comparatively to the other portions of SWIG drug that they weren't following. This is relatively minor, but um, had they been doing this, uh, they would have realized much more quickly that their practices were out of date, if not entirely invalid. Correct. So it, it seems like a minor point, but to your point what you, that you just made, Chris, this is a huge thing because they could have caught what they were doing and been like, okay, blown the whistle and said, we need to stop, we need to reset because, and this is something we could fast forward to, but you said before we started recording that Luke Ryan actually asked Rebecca on the stand about this, correct? About uh, the training piece? Well, uh... Or was it Sharon? Well, no, he asked... Or, or about the um, swig drug piece, yeah, I'm sorry. About yeah. the representation that they were following swig drugs. So I can pull that up in just a second. But I also wanted to add, uh, if they had been doing this, as Ilias pointed out in an earlier episode, it would have fostered a healthy dialogue about whether or not they needed more funding. So right. if they gone to the legislature and said, look, the entire scientific community says we need to do X, we need money for that, they probably would have gotten it. Right. Okay, so let me just scroll down to the page. I and, and Chris, as you do that, let me just also uh, sort of mention that one of the arguments that uh, uh, listeners are going to hear is, well, nobody told me that I have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, if you don't go to training <laughs> and get your 20 hours every year, of course, no one told you Right. That's like imagine a lawyer or a doctor uh, saying no one told me something if you haven't opened a book in uh, in 20 years. And right. if they're saying on the stand that they follow swig drug and like the, one of the main things in there is you have to have these hours like and you know you're not getting trained at all. Like how could you represent that on the stand that you're actually following? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so that's problematic as far as the witness credibility issue. What's more concerning to me, which I'm sure we'll get into the the stuff about actual drug standards and reference materials that they right. don't have been following. But back to what you had mentioned earlier, during um, even as far back as the Kinder hearings, let's see, I'm pulling up the page. Um, so Luke picked up on the fact that as part of you know mandatory discovery in every criminal uh, case, 
they would essentially um, issue paperwork saying that we follow swig drug or that's what the Hinton lab was doing in the Amherst labs case. They said, we essentially do everything the same as an accredited lab. Um, so, uh, he asked her, um, reading from the document, all procedures performed are the same as any accredited analysis laboratory. And then she says, yes. And he says, that's not entirely an accurate statement. Is it? Uh, and she waffles back and forth, but then ultimately um, she admits that I can see it's misleading now. Yes, <laughs> isn't that the nicest? Luke has the nicest way of calling you a damn liar, right? <laughs> like uh, we, everything is the same. Actually, number one, you don't even know what an accredited lab would even look like if you, you know, fell into one from outer space. And number two, like how can you assert? Like, how are you asserting that? Like, you know yourself, you don't have any standards. You know yourself, you don't have any procedures that you follow. Like, right. it, and, it's and, it's baffling. And um, I, I I think this was touched on by an um, Annie Duke in email, but at least in transcripts I've seen, and I haven't obviously looked at every criminal trial uh, involving uh, chemist testimony, but wouldn't it be a fair assumption that in the majority of criminal cases, a prosecutor elicited a, a statement from a chemist that the lab, either lab follows a swig drug. Right. Um, and so the, the, the scale of the uh, misleading testimony is actually massive. It is. Yeah, I mean, that's they, a great point. Uh, yep. The Supreme court. So uh, as part of the Melendez Diaz case, uh, lawyers obtained a statement from Julia Nasif stating that the lab followed swig drug and it's referenced in the Melendez Diaz opinion, but it just was not true. Right. And they they keep, they use it as their like biggest weapon in court saying that these, these labs are 100% above board knowing full well that they are not. That is incredibly problematic. That is a, a, a knowing lie and when you know that you're lying, it's it's incredibly problematic in court, and especially when you're dealing with scientific processing. So, we'll let's get back to so next clip is so we know that Sharon is a newbie. She, uh, in, according to herself, she's a newbie who hasn't been trained outside of the lab. So let's play the Rebe- next clip. Rebecca. Or, oh yeah, Rebecca. I'm sorry. I'm gonna keep messing that up. Was there any type of peer review or, or anybody checking your work constantly or is it, would you characterize it more as just independent, getting your work done type of place? Um, not, there wasn't peer review besides, I guess, what Sharon, she would be the one that would enter our results. So if anything was discrepant, she would bring it to our attention. But there wasn't actually like our paperwork wasn't reviewed. So it was independent. Wow. And so she would only, so you're fully relying on Sharon there to make sure that she's catching stuff and entering it correctly into the system. And she's only catching, you know, the, the numbers that she's supposed to enter, let alone any other discrepancies that could be on that paperwork. She's not reviewing it for any kind of uh, discrepancies. She's just entering numbers. And if something doesn't look right, then she flags it. That's how I understood that, right? And this gets back to that misrepresentation thing. They were doing everything the same way as an accredited lab. So 
accredited labs have routine audits. And so it's not just internal staff trying to catch errors every once in a while. They yeah. have an outside, independent, independently funded uh, entity coming in to see what's going on. Yeah, and this would normally, in a normal like biotech or pharmaceutical lab, this would be the function of quality assurance. They would be an entire group who is responsible for peer, what they call peer review would be checking every single step that they took to ensure that it was done properly. And you just their whole job is to go back over the work, and they didn't even have that there. They were relying. And not on only that. does that alone generate a paper trail, but any error, or she used the word discrepant, which I like, because yeah. um, that's something that in science that you don't gloss over. That right? No, um, that's a full investigation. That, that the thing you're about to represent being A might actually be B, right? And you have to, at a minimum, log that, generally investigate it, and very often invalidate your results. Right. Uh, if you and, couldn't and, prove it, you'd have to go back and prove that what you what you asserted was what you were trying to assert, and you have right. to like get all collect all the evidence and do what's called a, an investigation, essentially, right. into that and, incident. And here's the wrinkle: this is not just a lab. You know, if this were uh, Pfizer. Uh, they would, uh, I, I'm sure, have a, a, a log and, uh, and, and do their investigations and, and iron out, given the, the, the money that's at stake, any, any problem. Um, but we're talking about every time you make a test that has a quote-unquote discrepancy, meaning it's not drugs, it's not the drug I thought it was, or it doesn't match some other thing that I'm representing to be true, that's exculpatory evidence for a, a, a defendant in the criminal process. Yep. And, and to, to not keep a paperwork, to not even keep tabs on it, but not keep any paperwork on that uh, is actually, uh, if you think about it, shocking. It is. And, and they just view this as no big deal. Like if you see that and it's like, oh yeah, there's a discrepancy here. Just fix that for me. Would you, it's supposed to say this. And that's like no lab on earth would do that. That's, that's worth its salt. Anyways, so let's um, let's go to the next one, which I believe is uh, asking Sharon about discrepancies in her work. Was it frequent that Sharon would find discrepancies in your work? I would say frequent. I would say occasionally. You know, I wrote down the wrong way or something like that. Okay, and you would take you would then take steps to correct that. Correct. Okay. And maybe what would in that example maybe you worked on the wrong way? What would you do? Um, I would check my notebook, and you know, maybe it would mostly likely because it would be a typographical or transcription error. Uh, so that would just be corrected as far as her entering it. So again, she's checking her own work to find the error in her own work. That's a big no-no in in any kind of scientific processing. Um. So the next one is so it's interesting. Um, Ilias, do you want to talk about the June breach? We haven't done. We've I think we've talked about it slightly, but when what actually started all of this was Annie Duke and getting or um, caught what they say caught uh, as a breach of protocol in what they called the June breach. Uh, you want to take us through that and and what led to that? Sure, and and, and this is so we're back now at, at the Hinton Lab which is, uh, I think, more resembling what people might think a lab uh, would look like, except that it's uh, more disheveled. Uh, but there, there are multiple rooms. 
Um, and uh, one of those rooms or, or, or one set of rooms, uh, not entirely clear to me, was called the evidence room. And there's an officer assigned to that room. And, and, and the way it was supposed to work is that a chemist would, would go to a, a, what I picture to be a little window, but I think there was a door, uh, and get um, uh, assigned and handed a set of samples. And it's important to have an evidence officer um, for maybe no other reason than chain of custody, um, but also to be sort of the gatekeeper because you can't have a free-for-all of of samples because that then weakens your chain of custody um, and also interjects possible bias in the testing process from the get-go. And so when you're talking chain of custody, that's the random or that's the receipt of the drugs in the lab. And that's also the distribution to the chemists from uh, that. So you receive it, it goes to an evidence officer, and then the evidence officer distributes it to the chemist for testing. And then they give it back to the evidence officer to go back to the police department. And and a a civil lawyer like me sort of usually um, yawns at chain of custody because we are allowed to introduce photocopies of photocopies of documents uh, and, and the originals never make their way uh, to a trial. But in, in the criminal world, criminal defense world, chain of custody is everything. So when in a murder case, when they pull out the prosecutor in the old movies used to hold up the, the gun with the pencil, which you're not supposed to do, but the only way you can prove that that gun was the gun found at the scene is through chain of custody. Otherwise, it could be any gun. Uh, and and uh, and it's so OJ in the glove, right? Yeah, it's the lifeblood of the ability to prosecute someone is to be able to prove that the thing I'm going to show you in the evidence bag is the same thing that I recovered at the scene. And right. so uh, you can't have breaches of uh, of protocol that undermine chain of custody. And it appears, although my memory is a little vague, that the evidence officer had a, uh, is it a, was a prolonged uh, sickness? Is that right? But was it, it somehow it, out of the, the lab? Yes. And yes. so Annie Dukin, according to her words, took it upon herself to check out um, some uh, large number of samples. I think it was over 100. Yep. Um, interestingly, they were uh, all, if, if memory serves, Norfolk County samples mm-hmm. uh, and from one or two jurisdictions, right? Uh, which Every I found one. that to be uh, very uh, politically savvy uh, to only impact uh, uh, one county uh, and, a, and a few localities. Um, and she took it and uh, wrote out the... Um, wrote the sample numbers as being checked out in their logbook, but did not initial them with the evidence officer's initials uh, because the evidence officer wasn't there. Right. Uh, and that I, uh, my memory was that on a following Monday or something, uh, Annie Dukins turns out to be actually a, a friend of hers in the lab, uh, Betsy O'Brien, comes in, sees the logbook with the missing initials and sees that that's an immediate problem because you have now samples that have left the lab without the proper uh, documentation. And she goes to tell somebody. And if you sort of think of one of those corny uh, mystery movies, uh, they come storming back to the evidence book and suddenly there are initials there. Right. And yeah, the evidence officer was not there. It uh, just appeared. Those are not my initials. So it became... 
that's the June breach. So it became discovered that Andy Dukin had had breached protocol, and and I don't uh, try to minimize that. That's a big deal. But I think of all the things that we've encountered in this, that might be the least big deal. Right. Uh, but that was considered a big enough deal that there was a lot of grim faces um, uh, and discussions about how to uh, marginalize her and eventually bump her out because of it. Interestingly, immediately upon discovery of the June breach, there was, uh, 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 through the uh, uh, office uh, uh, memory bank, a memory that, oh, you know what? She kind of did the same thing in May. <laughs> um, yep. And, 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 uh, and so um, it, it, it's sort of fascinating that uh, uh, one discovery somehow leads to the other in the reverse chronological order. Um, and so what, but that is the event that triggered uh, everything that, that, I don't want to say everything, but largely everything that followed uh, uh, after that. So the, the June breach is sort of the, um, it, 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 it's sort of the, 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 the trigger for a lot of the events that subsequently took place. Because it was the justification for termination. She got fired. And then after she was fired, people started looking into it. The state police investigated. And then the whole uh, thing blew up that following uh, September. So she was, the June breach happened in 2011. And uh, it was a big deal because uh, she broke protocol and uh, worked outside of the evidence office. Now let's hear, and the reason I, you know, that, that long-winded explanation is for the, is a setup to the next clip. Um, uh, as we go into uh, what the evidence office was like uh, after it caused all that trouble at, at uh, the Hinton lab, what it was like at the Amherst lab. So Rand, if you want to play that next clip. Did you ever act as evidence officer? Yes. How many times? Can you guess? Uh, I can't guess, but Frequently. not very often. Okay. And when would you act as evidence officer? Uh, usually when Sharon or Jim weren't there. Did Sonia ever act as the evidence officer? Yes. Okay. So... So right there, as part of their protocol, as Ilya said before, um, they are breaching protocol. There is no evidence officer. Every it's just free for all. Everyone gets you know acts as the evidence officer at times. It's highly problematic because we know that Eric she's admitted to going into the evidence room, opening up evidence samples, and then smoking crack while still in the evidence room. So the the notion that this person was handling the intake of evidence, it just is mind-boggling. Yeah, and they're only, and they fought, they being the state, has fought tooth and nail to uphold only, it, it like uphold every single case that was associated with this. Uh, and then when they concede, they only concede the ones that Farrakh herself tested, correct? Like those, in, in, in even limited amounts of those, right? Yes, yeah, so... Um, after a great deal of litigation, um, after CPCS and the ACLU filed a suit in CPCS versus Attorney General, um, there was a lot of work for the actual SJC hearing where the district attorneys all ultimately agreed, all right, we're, you know, given what we now know, we're not going to contest Farrick's work at Amherst, but... Uh, regardless of the possibility of cross-contamination and, and whatnot, we're still going to try and keep uh, every other conviction that stemmed from that lab. And also, we're going to keep all the convictions that stem from Farrick's work at the Hinton lab. Right. 
knowing full well of these practices that we're going over because this happened in 2015 that they were that they interviewed uh, this person and these people that we'll all listen to. So let's get to the next clip then. Did did Sonia ever act as evidence officer? Manually enter each sample. Um, you'd get information oh, from the police department. We would generate an Amherst label um, or a lab number for each item. Um, so we would basically enter the information required um, in the limb system and make sure each bag was sealed by that particular police department. Um, and then all those samples from that submission would be put in a paper bag um, with the town name, I believe, and the, the range of samples, so like A1 through A12. Um, and then that would be entered into the evidence locker. All right, that was that was the intake of the process. I'm sorry. So that so, was... So that's, oh, that's also problematic not having an evidence officer uh, whose only duties are to um, take care of the evidence samples because you've subsequently learned that Barrick used the heat sealing process as a way to steal drugs. So she was able, I guess, as a result of having served as an evidence officer, uh, she realized that um, some police departments didn't routinely heat seal their bags or the seal wasn't so good. So she used that, she exploited that, um, and would get into work early. She would turn down the settings on the heat sealer so that when they would come in, um, it just wouldn't work. And then she would later keep track of those samples and go back into them later. Um, so again, you know, I, I don't think anyone ahead of time could have imagined that there would be some criminal mastermind like Sonia Farrick doing something like this, but it's problematic when uh, the chemists are serving as their own evidence officers. It just uh, creates an opportunity for theft. Right. And, and she said at the beginning... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. Is it, so wouldn't it make more sense that the, the, uh, the police uh, uh, department, the arresting department would heat seal their own bag. I mean, it seems to me that's a big chain of custody problem if you're driving around in your car with an open bag of drugs. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they're supposed to do that, but it turns out um, the evidence officer from, I'm sorry, the person from the police department at, at Springfield, uh, Kevin Burnham, it turns out was also stealing from evidence. Yeah. So uh, there's a large question in my mind as to whether or not um, that's another issue that should have been looked into. The um, investigation into Burnham uncovered that he was stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from evidence, but uh, no one had the stomach to figure out whether or not um, he was also stealing from drug evidence samples. But right. it stand to reason that, you know, uh, one cause for his evidence bags not being sealed up is that he had his hands in them. Right. And Chris, there's an interesting parallel, which is that Sonia Farks out west uh, in, near Springfield, where uh, detect, uh, I think it was Detective Kevin Burnham was operating, right. you know, pilfering money and possibly other things. It was um, like 400000 right, that, that he was caught ultimately with, they say. Meanwhile, it is, yeah. but it, they actually had some accounting firm go in and do an audit, and it, it's, out there on the internet somewhere. 
And there's another there's back east though. Uh, there's another accounting firm hired to do another audit, which was of uh, a Braintree um, Police Department because they had their own evidence room uh, scandal. Uh, and interestingly, that's in Norfolk County, uh, and that's the same county that Annie Dukin had uh, fortuitously decided to uh, 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 limit her June breach to. So uh, I think a rational person would have asked the question, was there some <laughs> need to investigate any linkages between those respective uh, uh, police departments and their disappearing evidence, along with what we know was evidence that disappeared into Sonia Farrakh and also evidence that was being mishandled by Annie Dukin. Uh, that seems to me to be an investigation that was uh, begging to be done, but never was. Yeah, the, you see major, it's almost like islands. The state wants you to believe it's islands of criminal activity happening like within people who are interacting every single day, involving right. the same kind of methodology, um, you know, not sealing, heap, not sealing bags properly and removing evidence and, you know, it, money and drugs. So the next, so now we're going to go get uh, started. Uh, Chris, you had mentioned drug standards before. We've gone over drug standards in the podcasts. We're going to get an earful now because uh, they're very important. It's what every single test is based on from all of these labs. They, uh, the, the test starts with the a comparison to a what's called a known drug substance or i.e. a drug lab standard. So let's go to the next uh, clip, Randy. A standard would be something that is essentially a known substance. Correct. Whether it be heroin, methamphetamine, LSD. And that was ordered, if you know, from an outside laboratory and brought into the lab to be used. I believe so, yes. Okay. And uh, that's a huge mistake on, uh, <laughs> on Rebecca's part there. <laughs> right, Chris? Yeah, I mean, so... We'll get into this with uh, additional clips, but it becomes clear quite quickly that she was aware that that was not the case and that uh, due to budget reasons, uh, they weren't actually able to purchase standards from outside sources and they had to resort to skimming from police submitted samples. Right. So let's go to... Uh, let's go to the next clip. This is about the uh, standard safe that they had there that was being pilched from. Could Sharon, from where she was in the evidence room, could she see who was at the standard closet? No. Okay. And could Jim Hanchett? No. And it's fair to say their offices were across the hall? Yes. From the lab? Yes. Okay, so they had no way of looking over into the laboratory. They'd have to physically come in to make... Jim had a desk in the little office area yes. in the lab as well. It's the office across the hall. But he wouldn't have direct. Yeah. So if he, if he was at his supervisor's office, let's over near Shannon, they'd have to physically walk across the hall and come in the lab. Yes. Okay. Um, All right. So clearly there is no security on the standard safe. Yeah. And, and let me just add um, for a period in time, it seemed like uh, they were held in a completely unlocked area of the lab, which violated some federal regulations. Um, I, I read off the list of them uh, during the last podcast, but for certain classes of drugs, the federal government requires that you house them in more and more secured areas. Um, and it seems like near the end, they were trying to get close to what those regulations required, but 
for the vast majority of the time that Ferrick was working there, they were just held in an unlock, unlock drawer. Yeah, and the and and a and fridge. I always think of like right. the dorm fridge. It's at UMass Amherst, so they just like threw it next to the bologna and the uh, the salami in the dorm fridge. That that's where the pharmacy and what standards are is pharmaceutical grade cocaine, pharmaceutical grade heroin, pharmaceutical grade you know any illegal substance. It's pharmaceutical grade because it has to be one hundred percent pure. So they had one hundred percent pure cocaine and heroin on the UMass Amherst campus, completely unsecured. Cool. And and not just pure, but also um, verifiably pure, with uh, other among other things, uh, an ex- expiration date, um, proper stability testing, things like that, so right. that you know what you have. Yep, and we'll get into. Uh, <laughs> anyways, we'll, we'll let's continue on. So, um. So the next clip is going to be about how drug standards were used at Mike, Amherst. Just oh, went out there, guys. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Maybe please. cut this out, but my connection's going in and out. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. Oh, no worries. Uh, go ahead with the next clip, Ren. So. And uh, the standards were kept in there. How were they organized? I have no idea. No idea. No. Um, had you ever had the opportunity to go into that standards cabinet? I don't think I ever did go in there. But you, it's fair to say you had access. Jim had the key, so I would have to ask him for the key. Okay. But you could get access? Yeah, but I wouldn't ask for access. Okay. Why wouldn't you ask for access? Uh, I wasn't in charge of the standards, and we didn't use them often. It was mainly for quanting purposes. And you say quantum. Quanting. Quanting. Um, when you have to figure out exactly how much of a substance is in a sample, you'd have to run a series of standards at different dilutions um, in order for the instrument to determine what concentration of particular substances. So my procedure would be to ask Jim if I needed to do that. He would get me the standard and leave, he would just leave it on my bench. Okay. And then you would do whatever you needed to do with that standard? Right. And what, was, what did you do when you were doing the quanting? What did you physically have to do with the standard? It would just be a matter of weighing out a certain amount to make a, a solution and then you dilute after that. Because I don't know what the measurements were. Okay, and how would, you, how would that process work? The diluting and... So you'd make a, I guess you'd say, you make a concentrated sample, let's say cocaine. Um, and then you make dilutions off that sample into different dilution factors. And why were you doing different dilution factors? Um, just so the instrument would be able to detect um, the cocaine at different concentrations and be able to determine where your unknown would fall into that range, I believe. Is that because you were given certain purity, certain... Drugs that were coming into the lab as police samples with different types of purity levels to them? Yes. Okay, so that's why you had to kind of do that full range. Yes. To see if the drugs would fall in. Right. So. Right. And you so, notice that she said she only did that with, she didn't always do that? Yeah, so aside from the security issues and complex issues about the standards, one of the things that I find interesting about that clip 
is she talks about the standards only being used for quantitative testing, not qualitative testing. Right. So, um, so the difference is for the listeners, uh, qualitative testing is when you're just trying to figure out what drug it is. Quantitative testing is when you're trying to figure out what percentage or purity uh, it is, which is important for federal cases mostly. However, um, SWIG drug requires that you use standards even for qualitative testing. So what I, what I gather from what she's saying is essentially for a lot of drugs, uh, they would just res- resort to the GCMS's library, which it, most of the time is accurate, but it's, as far as I understand it, sort of similar to printer paper jams. Uh, every once in a while, the machine is going to mal- malfunction. It's sort of impossible to predict when that's going to happen although you know at some point in the future it will, that's sort of the point of having standards to run against the evidence samples so that you can demonstrate that the machine is functioning. Right. It, every it time. Every the time. For their drugs, uh, everything besides heroin and cocaine, it doesn't seem like they were using standards at all. And again, we'll get into the issues with their cocaine and heroin uh, standards, but uh, this all of it seems to be in violation of swig drug. Yeah, right. If I, I mean, the qualitative testing isn't that the part of the testing where you figure out if it's an illegal substance. Yes. So it seems like you're sort of skipping over the most important part, right? Um, and then going to the second phase to sort of paraphrase Winston Churchill that we're just haggling about how much, um, and that seems to be pretty. <laughs> a, a pretty uh, a egregious uh, oversight of the most important step. Right. I, I, while we were listening to these clips, I looked up, uh, there's a case in Massachusetts called Commonwealth v. Payne. The site is 86 Mass Ave Court 432 from 2014. And it talks about, not exactly this issue, but the fact that the Commonwealth has the burden of proving that a drug is a particular drug. So in a case involving a narcotics offense, the Commonwealth must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the substance at issue is a particular drug because such proof is an element of the crime charged. And then it goes on to say, you know, without uh, adequate testing, um, you know, it's very, very difficult for the Commonwealth to meet its burden. And so in all of these cases, essentially coming out of that lab, you know, if the defense bar realized what was going on if they had provided adequate notices of discovery describing what the actual operations were. Essentially, all of the results could have been challenged. Yeah, because, I mean, every single aspect of this testing, every, you know, um, plateau that you have to reach to get a scientifically valid result is compromised at this lab. From the receipt of the material to the storage of the material to the testing of the material to the training of the people who are performing the testing, all of it is nonsense. Am I? And, it, it, and that's what they're showing us. The cross contamination issues. So this was yeah. a little bit in the Kerry hearings. I think we should have delved more deeply into it. Um, there are articles out there from the scientific community that say, you know, if you ignite crack cocaine in a room residue sticks on the walls and surfaces for a large amount of time 
Um, so we know that Farrick, as I mentioned earlier, was doing that in the evidence room. Right. Um, <laughs> right. One it's, of it's, and in the lab, right? And in, at her desk and right. in it's, multiple places. Right. And this is not just a uh, theoretical concept. I think there was a lab in uh, DNA lab in uh, Maryland where they found that the chemists were uh, contaminating the samples with their own DNA. Um, which yeah. uh, I, I think that uh, the, the likelihood that Sonia Farak was contaminating samples, even in an ambient fashion, you know, forget direct mishandling, um, is actually pretty significant. Um, and I, but I, Chris, I just want to go back to the library point because I think I'm not a chemist, uh, and so it seems superficially attractive that you say, well, if it matches what's in the library, what's the why do you need the um, uh, why you need the the comparison to a known standard, um, but at least on the GC part, the library doesn't tell you that it's it's that drug, right? It just tells you um, the sort of the 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 hang time, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, right? And just because I hang in the air as long as Michael Jordan doesn't make me Michael Jordan, uh, and there might be another reason why I'm hanging in the air, uh, and and so it seems to me that that reliance on the library alone is just a nice thing to do, but that's not enough. Yeah, and Swig Drug says you have to use standards. So um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the gas chromatograph is about um, hang time, so to speak. It's the amount of time it takes for the chemicals to travel through uh, you know, the instrument after they've been um, heated up and the mass spectrometer actually breaks apart the molecules and sees um, what they're made of. And then it tries to um, compare those results with known results um, in various libraries that they get from NIST. Uh, But again, the fundamental thing for me is they can't show the machine was running properly if they don't use a contemporaneous standard. Right. Right. And I mean, that's... to me, it sounds like a step above dry labbing, right? You're just comparing something from the past to you know something you're running through the system. So it's a little more than just looking at it and saying it's cocaine. But um, if you're not running a standard through per their requirements, it's it's not valid science, in my opinion, and in also in Swig Drug's opinion too. I don't know what the error rates are, but what really gets me angry is that they didn't tell the defense bar about this so that it could be properly challenged. Right. So again, I mean, this is the same theme. Every single guest we've had on who's dealt with this case has said the same exact thing that they've withheld evidence and that would have, you know, enabled uh, more cases to be dismissed and more truth to come out um, at the time of these trials. And then you, you find out about it later. And, you know, these are years off of people's lives that they should have had back that the state uh, willingly and wantingly took. So uh, next clip is a short one. It's again um, her conform- confirming that she thinks that the standards come from outside. Uh, and these standards, if you know, they were basically pure drugs from an outside source. I think so, yeah. Yeah, they were manufactured in the lab. Yeah. Okay. And... All right, that's number two. And so the next one is a long clip uh, where she said she hasn't heard of secondary standards before. And then she discusses what she knows about how supervisor um, Jim Hanchett manufactured uh, drugs in the lab. 
So, have you've heard of secondary standards, correct? No, no. <laughs> well, okay, so we, we had a conversation back in Springfield regarding the manufacturing of standards within the Amherst lab. Oh. Right, so that's what I'm talking about. Okay. So, I guess I say secondary because... You know, that's, that's what you would use. Okay. So, <laughs> did, did you did you know if, what what did you yourself ever use the secondary samples standards? The are you referring to the ones that Jim made? Yeah. Yes, those were the ones that I would use. Yes. Okay. And um, did you ever did you ask why you were using the secondary samples or the ones that Jim made? No, that was just how we did things. And that's how you were trained when you came into the lab. Yes. Okay. I mean, you say Jim made them. I know we had a conversation about how they were made, but can you explain to me again? Hold on, pause it right there, Rand. So, I mean, I just want to reiterate that literally five seconds ago, she said that, oh yeah, these come from the outside. Oh no, Jim made them. Like, how do you switch so quickly? Like, we're talking about the same thing, correct? Yeah, I mean, they laid it out in front of her that they knew she was lying. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, am I missing something? Her nonverbal reaction was of somebody who was just confronted with a lie or sort of that, uh, I don't know what you'd call that sound, but it was somewhere between a nervous laugh and, um, you know, uh, wishing you could uh, slither under the table. Right. (laughs) And what did Luke say? That's not completely the truth, is it? That's not completely correct. Inaccurate statement. Um, all right, continue, Rand. I'm sorry. Explain to me again how he would take a known uh, sample, not a standard, a sample um, that he confirmed to be a substance, say cocaine, um, and take an aliquot of that sample and make a known cocaine standard from that. Okay, so and did, did, did you know how to do that? No. Okay, so now just to clarify, and this is obviously based upon our previous conversation, there would be, um, a, a, for example, a kilo of cocaine would come in from Springfield. Um, the test would be done on that kilo, so maybe it was assigned to you. You would do the test, um, and it would be found to be cocaine. In fact, maybe a very high purity of powder cocaine. Um, would Jim then come and take from that sample and put no, it in? No, I believe he only took from samples that he analyzed. Okay, so you wouldn't like flag, you wouldn't say, hey, Jim, this had a really no. sharp peak really quickly for a sample that's very pure. No. Why don't you come on over and take some of it? No. No. So, but you know that if he analyzed something and found it to be extremely pure, he would he would scoop a little I off. I don't know how he screened for standards, oh, okay. so I, I have no idea. But you know that he did take from the submitted samples, take an aliquot of yes. that, and he later manufactured it. Yes. Okay. Um, but you never saw him do that? No. And did, what did he just tell you, or did Sharon tell you? Um, this, I don't really... Store. Did you ask him? Um, well, we had a fridge. Memory is foggy. So we had a fridge that he, when he would make up, you know, he would have like a little flask or a beaker. Um, 
make up the standard and put it in the fridge for whenever we ran out of standard to run on the mass spec and GC, we would go and take, you know, two mils out of the pre-made standard and use that. Okay, I, I hadn't asked about that. There was another place where you stored standards. Yes. But that was a refrigerator. Yeah. And was that located, that was also located on the instrument side? No, that was next to Jim's bench, all the way in the corner. Okay. Now, okay. And that, that was not under lock and key, correct? Correct. So super secure. And, um, you know, again, there's the fridge with the uh, 30 jars of half-used mustard and cocaine and uh, meth- methamphetamine uh, it, at the Amherst lab. Now, um, there's a lot in that that, that was said there. Uh, what, what are your impressions of that process, guys? Because they're, they're referring to these as secondary standards, but I believe in Swig Drug it says a secondary standard is derived from an actual standard, not from drugs off the street. Is that correct, Jim? Is that correct, Chris? I'm sorry. So, I mean, one of the issues here is that for years, uh, the DEA was publishing a journal called Microgram that wasn't available to the public and was only available to drug lab chemists. If actual scientists had seen what they were describing, there would have been an issue. So for a time in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, this was sort of what they were doing and it was generally accepted. And then in either the late 90s or the early 2000s, uh, it started to become they, they publicly published it. And in addition, Swig Drug was formulated and they started getting comments from the rest of the scientific community saying, gosh, you really need to do something different with your standards. Um, so for a certain period of time, years ago, this was all right and this is what they were doing, but certainly not in the early 2000s, all the way up till the time that the lab closed. And I believe. Um, one of the state police chemists testified to that uh, when she was uh, in the grand jury session that Caldwell convened. Um, that's a part of all of this. She's, she testified that that's not an appropriate practice. You can't manufacture standards in labs. <laughs> because right. and you don't know what you're testing off of the street, right? You're, you're getting street drugs. Anyways, go ahead, Elias. What were you going to say? Well, and, and we covered, we touched on this last time, Chris, but I mean, you're also sort of run, running afoul of uh, an entire set of uh, regulatory regimes right. that are meant to prohibit the, uh, uh, the sort of um, breaking bad approach to life, which is if, if you need some drugs, just, just make them. So um, there, were, there were two different things, if I could interject real quick. That they were doing. One is just the skimming and cleaning up of samples. I don't think that was technically illegal under federal law. The other thing that Hanchett described, which we'll get into uh, in a later episode, and I described in part previously, chemically synthesizing heroin from morphine without following the federal uh, requirements, that is illegal. <laughs> so he was literally manufacturing and, drugs and, and breaking the law. Illegally. But the, what I like about the, the audio we just heard was the, the phrase making up standards. And I've seen that uh, in a few places. And the first place chronologically that, that I've seen it was when Annie Dukin, um, uh, well, when, when chemists, including Annie Dukin, were interviewed 
by the state police as part of the initial investigation. Uh, and this is now in Hinton that they would people would sort of comment on what was Annie Dukin doing, and there was an answer: well, she was making up standards, and that doesn't make sense. Uh, if you interpreted making up standards to mean preparing the standard aliquots um, for uh, loading into the GMC, GCMS carousel, because you wouldn't have someone just sitting there doing that. That doesn't make any sense. That would be the, uh, the operator would prepare their aliquots in theory, uh, and, and, and that would be part and parcel of the broader testing that they're doing. Um, and... For some reason, even though the state police knew about it, and even though the OIG had access to, in theory, everything that the state police uncovered, why did nobody ever say, what, whoa, 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 what do you mean making up standards? So this was in 2012 that there was knowledge of the practice of, by some other entity of making up standards. Uh, and it went down the, sort of the, the, the memory hole as if it never was said, only to be resurrected conveniently after the OIG concluded that Annie Dukin was the sole bad actor and there was nothing to worry about otherwise. Uh, and now there's been a, a number of hearings with respect to Amherst um, and this, and Luke Ryan and others are figuring out that this is going on and trying to get to the truth. And now we find out that there was indeed making up standards uh, and that it means exactly what people would have been worried about back in 2012 if they had been told about this. Yeah, just to be entirely clear, I think I mentioned on a previous uh, episode, there is a non-nefarious um, making up of standards. So they come in different forms, like powder or liquid, and they're concentrated. So in order to use it in machines, you'll dilute it or prepare it in such a manner that it can be injected. So making up standards in that sense is fine, but making up standards in the sense that you're out of money, you're taking morphine and you're attempting to make heroin out of it is not fine. So uh, they, they were certainly aware of this at least by 2015. And whenever the chemists use these phrases, no one ever asks them to clarify it, which is sort of astounding, right? Like, right. Well, because the chemists, I think, presented it so matter-of-factly because it was such a part of their daily, you know, in-and-out routine to make up a standard if it was getting low. And, um, you know, to your point earlier, Chris, about um, how this was, you know, standard process uh, through the 90s, Jim Hanchett had been there forever. So, and, and so he had been there forever, and, you, and you're hiring people with zero experience who are coming in being trained by him. So that is going to continue on unless he is actually told to stop or removed from his position and someone else is in there doing it properly because- Or you have yearly training as is required by Swig Drug. Yep. Right. And Chris, do you, did you ever get your hands on the, the microgram um, articles? that there, there are some that are publicly available online. And as a result of that, I've learned a whole bunch more about this in general, but there are still, you know, decades worth that are not available. So, but all, all this time that this I, was going I, I on. Originally, there was a public policy reason for that because they didn't want to teach people how to make crack cocaine. Right. Sonia found out anyways, but... <laughs> Well, Probably for making standards, right? It seems like, and, and Chris, you tell me, this is my gut impression, um, that one explanation for what may have happened here uh, is that 
back in a during a time of uh, sort of looser standards, uh, Hanchet and and others sort of set up their their, um, their pitch you know pitched their tents and started working and learned how to do things. And that as the world continued to evolve around them, they kind of stayed uh, as holdouts. Right. Is that sort of a fair? I mean, right. that's certainly because a little bit. Thing and also crest, you know. I'm, I'm sorry. Say that again. It, it seems like that's exactly right. It's, they didn't have the funding, but it also seems like they didn't really have the interest. Right. Because they had this was their process. It, it works perfectly fine. We've been doing it for 30 years. You know why change? And meanwhile, so what? What this really does is call into question literally every test that's ever gone into this lab ever. Because if the scientific um, way to do this process was invalid. You know, when the state police took over, it was certainly invalid in the seventies and, and eighties when it was uh, when it was initiated. Right. Well, it's a little from a from a legal analysis perspective. It's a little bit more dicey because I think you have to look at what was the accepted practice at the time. Uh, so I'm not hundred percent sure if there's anything that can be done about what was going on in the 80s and 90s, but certainly uh, it's an issue that people in two DPH labs were representing that they were following generally accepted scientific uh, practices and principles, knew they were not, and uh, uh, you know uh, were allowed to testify to that in court. Right. So, but it, it, it's worth mentioning, though, that that when you're dealing with science, that that even best case science is uh, um, facing what some have coined uh, a replication crisis, which is this idea that even top shelf scientific research, when when uh, which, which generally has some incentive for the researchers to prove the thing they're trying to prove, whether it's for grant money, notoriety, or furthering their own careers, um, and but when a different team their own equipment uh, tries to replicate reading just simply the published results of the first team. They're, 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 it's a surprisingly poor replication rate, uh, given that science doesn't really allow for poor replication rates. Mm -hmm. uh, that's concerning. Right. So no, all of this is in the backdrop of nobody ever went back and, and, and comprehensively retested things. The closest is OIG retested things and, of course, found numerous instances where the results were discrepant. Uh, but they used a lot of clever math to keep shrinking the denominator so it looked like the numerator wasn't so bad. But, uh, 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 but, but when, you, when you think about the fact that you're getting even a, a, a noticeable set of discrepancies, that's concerning. And, and James, to Jamie's point, that does call into question all your results. Because right. you just don't know which were the good ones and which were the bad ones. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is what, what has been plaguing this case, in my opinion, forever is um, people insisting that this is a case about law when it's really a case about science, in my opinion. This is about what were things done properly and does anything there have any kind of scientific relevance if you put it up to any kind of strain. And, and, and there being human beings on the other end of this whose uh, uh, life uh, employability uh, contact with their family members, loved ones, et cetera, are hanging in the balance. Right. 
So, um, all right, let's do, uh, we're, we're down to the last four uh, clips here. So let's do um, the next one, Randy. So well, let me get back to the question. Um, would Jim ever indicate to you like, oh, we're running low on the cocaine standard or the heroin standard? I have to go make some, so I got to make some new ones. Not that I remember, no. But you know he did. So just so I'm clear, he, you, you know that he was taking from the police submitted samples to make those? I'm pretty sure that's how we made them. Are you guessing or? No, I knew that, you know, I don't know for how long. I think once the state police took us over, that practice stopped. Practice stopped. Okay. Um, that? Sorry, I was going to say that. Let's, uh, let's pause there. Hold on. Go ahead, Chris. So I was going to say that clip is really interesting as I... Um, wrote to you all this morning, um, it turns out uh, he did not stop when the state police uh, told him to. So Luke Bryan and Heather Harris uh, were able to, as a result of their review of documents that were seized from the Amherst lab, were able to get a copy of the standard logbook. And what's interesting about that is it's fairly regular and normal for a period of years. And then Hanchett takes over and there is nothing in there for about eight years. Then the state police take over and he creates a spreadsheet, which is, uh, you know, also fairly regular. However, if you look at the cocaine and heroin standards, he's referencing samples again from their own lab. So specifically, uh, for their cocaine sample, or uh, for their cocaine standard, they were using sample number D192421. And for their heroin standard, they were using D188127. Um, there aren't any other legitimate cocaine or heroin standards listed in their logbook at all, um, going back over a decade. And I believe he's testified under oath that he stopped doing this when the state police took over, um, similar to what Rebecca Ponce just uh, suggested, but it clearly is not the case. Right. So he continued on even after he was specifically told not to. That is incredibly significant. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lab processed cocaine and heroin samples after the state police took over, then yes, it appears that he perjured himself. Right. Right. And she did as well, right? If she ever saw well, him. She, she sort of couched it in saying, I think, and I'm not sure. And yeah. I, I actually don't know if she would have been in a position to know because he was the one that was doing all this. Right. That's a fair point. Yeah. And uh, Chris, do you know, um, or are you able to, uh, determined by looking at those sample numbers um, when when they were um, either seized or whether when they entered the the Amherst lab is that it, it's possible I no longer work at DCS so I don't have access to the hidden drug lab evidence database but I recall when I looked this up before they were from years and years before okay so meaning um, you know, there, there, there might be additional, in addition to what we've covered about uh, 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 the, the, all the reasons why you shouldn't be uh, using C samples as the source for your secondary standard, um, they may have just been sitting around for a while 
uh, or yeah. they might be derivative of uh, you know um, uh, of a series of, of attempts to extract drug, uh, which would also ma- magnify any problems. Yeah, we have no idea what the storage conditions were. Uh, what I mean, there obviously was no protocol for selecting these things because they didn't have protocols. So all the problems that I delved into in the last episode, you know, are clearly apparent here for an unknown amount of criminal cases. Right. All right. Let's uh, let's hit the next clip. Oh yeah, continue that one. Yeah. Sorry. And why did it stop at the state police? Uh, they didn't do it, so our protocols had to change to the state police protocols. So. And what were their protocols? They would use a known standard from an outside in, uh, developer to make their own standards. Okay. So could you? Yeah, they didn't do it for a reason. <laughs> And they panicked. I mean, if you read that audit and in, in any of the interviews that people have had as a result of that audit, once they found out he was making secondary standards there, they're like, immediately stop. Do not do that. They were uh, very... One thing that we learned, uh, and it'll probably come up in a future episode, in the one regarding Salem's uh, interview, he was apparently ordered to leave the state police building as soon as they found out about this. <laughs> so he was immediately, uh, I mean, I won't say like fired and walked out, but essentially that's what happened, right? They just told him to beat it. Yeah, my understanding is that he retired very shortly thereafter. After they found out now as a result of these interviews or as a result of them just finding out that he was doing it in the first place? As a result of the Pontes and Salem interviews, the state police and the attorney general's office became aware of this. As we'll see, I'm sure in a clip from the Salem interview, he was ordered out of the building. And then by the time he's interviewed like a month or two months later, he's already retired. <laughs> and conveniently, we're, we're now talking about the last couple of months of 2015, I believe. Right. And I don't know when he retired officially, whether that was early 2016. But the OIG came out with a supplemental report um, that um, in in February of 2016, which it doesn't say uh, no other problems, um, but it by by identifying some one or two additional problems discovered, it suggests that there's not any other problems that that are on the horizon. And so right. it's sort of interesting that yet there was actually a second bite at the apple for the OIG to have actually uh, uh, conducted what would have been a a comprehensive investigation that they never actually did. Um, And and yet that opportunity also fell by the wayside. Like a fair-minded person might say, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt, there are different labs. However, they were acutely aware that evidence samples from the Hinton lab were being sent to Amherst for testing as overflow samples because they just had too many samples to deal with. So one would think as part of their investigation as to the integrity of those samples, they would have looked to how they were dealt with over at Amherst. Right. Right. And they never did. They didn't care. So they didn't even have control over what they were. I mean, anyways, Okay, so let's let's go on. Let's move on to the next one. Um, I, I want to 
be clear. <clears throat> Are you, this process that you describe how Jim made made these standards. Are you are you assuming it, or I don't know exactly how he made them, or how often he made them, but I know that's how he made them. And I guess I have to ask you, and this is kind of a hard question. I'm not trying to be, you know, hard or anything. How do you know what you know? Did I you see him? Did no, you stand over him? No, I think that's, he told us that's how he made them. He told you? Yeah. Okay. Right. And this was way back when, obviously, when you, when you first asked him, uh, when you were first learning yeah, this sort of thing. When he would have said that, but I don't, I don't ever recall watching him make them or learning how to make it because that was, you know, he made the standards. That's where I got him from. I didn't question it. I didn't yeah. Now, let me ask you another thing. <laughs> <laughs> That interview, it, it just reminds me of Columbo, you know? Let me ask you one more thing. Uh, so clearly, you know, they're, they're trying to get at how did, how did uh, she know exactly that he was really doing that? And, you know, he, he basically admitted it to her. Well, it, it really underscores a fundamental problem the lab in that they had no actual written protocols. Right. So I, I said in the previous episode that you know, if you want to do anything like this, it has to be well documented, and you, you know, you, you have to go through all sorts of testing. The fact that they had no written protocols about which sample to choose, homogeneity testing, stability testing, all of that is highly problematic, and it just underscores the fact she doesn't know because he was sort of winging it. Right. All right. Next clip. What would the standards be used for? To compare your unknown samples submitted by police agencies. To compare the known against the unknown on your instrumentation. Would that be done with every submission that came in from a police department? It was done with every batch. So when we were assigned a batch, say of 15 to 20 samples, you would run the standard first, then a blank, and then your series of unknowns. So you would make sure your standard came back positive, um, your blank was empty, and then you'd have your unknowns compared to your standard. So it's fair to say that you use standards quite frequently. Yes. Okay. Didn't she say she hardly used them before? <laughs> that's just a small thing so uh, again there's though she admits that uh, they used it for uh, the batch uh, sampling and not for each individual sampling um, it, are there, is there another clip Ren? okay let's play the next one what's your understanding of um, if, if a standard wasn't made by Jim it, was Jim the only one who made these? Do you yes. know? That's a yes? Yes. Yes. And um, what's your understanding, if it wasn't made by Jim, where would it come from? I have no idea. 
Okay. Um, and then what, did you go to any um, trainings or anything? Do you know if this is a standard practice throughout the state, the country, whatever? I'll say this on record. At the time, I did not know. Yeah. Uh, but now I think it's probably not standard practice anymore. Uh, maybe it was at one point, but you know, just being under the state police and knowing their protocols, I can safely assume that it wasn't. I'm not saying it was wrong because that's just the way it was done. Right. Right. I understand. Um, but at the time, I didn't know if it was wrong or right. It was wrong. Spoiler alert. Oh, oh, okay. All right. So there's a bunch more in this actually, Randy, that I had for clips. Um, I may have sent you the, I may not have saved my file before I sent it to you. Um, so I have a bunch more in here, including uh, Sonia uh, coming up to her and looking at her um, bunch of cocaine that she got longingly and making creepy comments. <laughs> there's one like that. And then there's also um, something that was obviously edited out. They, the question was, Sonya, has Sonya ever made any reference to using drugs while you were working with her? And there's a clear edit there. There's like right. a, a real bad edit. While so, you're looking those, I'm looking for uh, two things. So one of the, as I mentioned before, one of the state police chemists testified, you can't do that. And then there's a news article somewhere, and I'm going to try and find it, where the director of the state police crime lab says, essentially, that's unacceptable. We don't do that. That being the standard manufacturer? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so, Ran so those, Randy, um, can I let me send you the updated file, and would you mind just cutting a few more together? I'm sorry that we're doing this ad hoc. Okay. All right. So, um, do you want to play? Uh, you want to end this one here because we are over an hour now, right? Let me just get this quote really quick, and okay. it's a good thing to end on. This okay. gonna take about two minutes. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, we can we can play that clip from Salem uh, at the end. That's a six minute clip, and we'll we'll end it with that. We'll end it with Chris's thing, and then we'll play uh, Sharon Salem's. Uh, um, no, we'll, we'll comment on that as well. So, yeah. Here, let, Randy, let me send you the updated one so we can next time start with this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Record it for sure. Yep. Like this interview, like, uh, like it's so funny. Like they're like, okay, so when did she tell you she was using drugs? Click. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I'm just going to give you a preview before we record for use in the podcast. But there are two things. So state police chemist Nancy Brooks testified that manufacturing standards in a lab is not an acceptable acceptable practice. That's from the Cotter report at page four. And then also uh, there's a WBUR article. Um, where uh, State Police Crime Lab Director Kristen Sullivan commented uh, after being questioned about this Amherst practice. So Amherst staff would sometimes make their own standards by skimming off police evidence and then, quote, 
That does not happen, Sullivan said. We do have things in place that would prevent that. All of our standards are purchased. So it just sort of underscores the notion that this is clearly not acceptable. Yeah. Like scientifically, they're refusing to say why. And it would actually be interesting to uh, talk to one of these people who manufacture this as kind of like a doughy-eyed, hey, why is this important? Why don't they just test the drugs off the street and let him give you the answer? I'm sure mm-hmm. it would be enlightening, you know? But, um, okay, so how do we want to, do you want to go over those two things and, and talk about them? Or you want to listen to the Sharon Salem one to end it? Uh, why don't I do that first and then we'll okay. listen to in Salem, so okay. So, so Chris, go ahead and and so Chris has some materials that he just found um, regarding these standards and and why it's important not to take them off the street and just uh, purify them, as they say. Right. So Pontus um, was just suggesting that you know she didn't know it was wrong at the time, just to underscore the notion that this is clearly unacceptable. Um, State police chemist Nancy Brooks. Uh, who was president at audit of the Amherst lab, testified that manufacturing standards in the lab is not an acceptable practice. That's straight from the attorney general's report at page four. And then uh, following the issuance of the report, state police crime lab director, um, Kristen Sullivan, also had to reassure the public the state police labs were not engaged in similar conduct. So in a WB article, um, WBUR, she said uh, in response to being asked or questioned about Amherst staff sometimes making their own standards by skimming off police evidence, she said, that does not happen. We do have things in place that would prevent that. All of our standards are purchased. So, right. Again, it just underscores you know, the rest of the scientific community years ago realized that this was not something that was scientifically reliable and something that could be done in chemical analysis labs. And it was common practice at Amherst. So um, I think, Elias, would you like to add something? Otherwise, I think we're going to pull it here and and do a part two of this because this is just, uh, we're not even done with this interview and we have another interview to go through. So uh, I I think... um, I hope everybody's um, going to be looking forward to uh, what we're going to play in the next episode. So, yeah, I'd say so. It's uh, it's pretty significant, and we can give. Um, uh, actually, you know what, Rand? Let's hold that audio for the next one, and let's just tease it there, and uh, let let's end that here. So, uh, thanks. We're we're glad to be back. As you can see, we've uh, we've already put some news out there that I don't think was uh, fairly understood by the public. So, I think that's a mission accomplished there. Uh, Chris, thank you as always for coming on, and Ilias, um, great job, guys. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah, thank and, you, Chris, and we will see you next time. <laughs>